That was Samfer with Indecision, quite appropriate for the Millennials Friday Night Brain Drain show right here on Asian Music Digital Channel. I'm your host, Terry Mardi. We're going to get back into it. If you like that track, you'll love this. Tell me if this feels familiar. I'm just going to read a little excerpt. So, wait, uh, 10 people in suits, okay? Circle of folding chairs and a chirpy HR rep with a clipboard. Each applicant telling her, one by one, in front of all of the others, why he's the right candidate for this $11 an hour job as a bank teller. It was 2010, and Scott had just graduated from college with a bachelor's in economics. A minor in business, and guess what, $30,000 in student debt. At some of the interviews, he was by far the least qualified person in the room. The other applicants described their corporate jobs as list and listed off their graduate degrees. Some look like they're in their 50s. And quote, One time an HR rep told us she did this three times a week, says Scott. And I just knew that I was never going to get a job. After six months of applying and interviewing and never hearing back, Scott returned to his high school job at the old spaghetti factory. After that, he bounced around selling suit at a Nordstrom outlet, cleaning carpets, waiting tables until he learnt that city bus drivers earn $22 an hour and get full benefits. He's been doing that for a year now. It's the most money he's ever made. He still lives at home, chipping in a few hundred bucks every month to help his mom pay the rent. In theory, Scott could apply for banking jobs again, but his degree is almost eight years old now, and he has no relevant experience. He sometimes considers getting a master's, but that would mean walking away from his salary and benefits for two years and taking on another five digits of debt. Just to snag an entry-level position at the age of 30 that would pay less than he makes driving a bus. He'll be able to move out in six months and pay off his student loans in 20 years if he took that path. Now, how does that make you feel? It goes on to say there are millions of people in Scott's, in, in, mod, in, uh, in Scott's position in this modern economy. A lot of workers were just 18 at the wrong time, says William Spriggs, an economics professor at Howard University and an assistant secretary for the policy of Department of Labor in the Obama administration. Employers didn't say, oops, we missed a generation in 2008. We weren't hiring graduates. Let's hire all the people we passed over. Nope, they hired the new class, the class of 2012. So all those people in the middle missed out. You can even see this in the statistics, a divot from 2008 to 2012, where millions of jobs and billions in earnings should be. In 2007, more than 50% of college graduates had a job offer lined up. Few, uh, for the class of 2009, however, just two years later, fewer than 20% of them did. So it's jumped down from 50% down to 20% in just two years. According to a 2010 study, every 1% uptick in the unemployment rate, the year you graduate means a 6-8% drop in your starting salary. So your amount of money that you're going to earn drops 6-8% every time there's a 1% increase in the employment rate. So you've got to pay attention to the unemployment rates. Right? The same study found that workers who graduated during the 1981 recession were still making less than their counterparts who graduated 10 years later. So according to this, does every recession Every recession uh, creates these cohorts that never recover. So that's why we need to pay attention to the political standing. 
Is a recession looming? Are we looking at the economical uh, climate? If we're not, we're not paying attention. You're essentially ignoring your future because there is a cyclical pattern forming here. Okay. I'm going to talk more about money in the next thing, but and your emotions as millennials. And guess what? We've always got solutions right here. So please call in with your interesting facts and contributions and we'll put them on here. Let's take it away. I'm quite enjoying this unraveling of this depressing story, but we'll get there. United we stand. You're listening to Asian Music Digital. Please like on Anchor FM. Download the app for free. Obviously, it costs data. Log on to a Wi-Fi if you can and get the app. And therefore, you can hit the star, giving me some applause, and even call in using the call-in feature at the bottom of your screen. All right. Speak to you soon. Another song, I think. Okay. There's a huge amount of data in this study that I've been reading that talks about the amount of hours of minimum wage work needed to pay for four years of public college by baby boomers, so people that were born perhaps before 1980, and people that were born after 1980. So for example, if you were a baby boomer and you did uh, four years of public college and you needed to pay for that, you would need to work 306 hours of minimum wage wage work to pay for that. However, if you're a millennial, take a guess, you couldn't. 4,459. That's more than 10 times. You have to work 10 times harder just to get to the same college. So the next time an oldie says to you, you are entitled, <laughs> just remind them of that stack, okay? Not stack, stat. Although there are stacks of stats. They exist. Now look, there's a bunch of economical reasons why this stuff has gone on. And I'm not going to get into that. Well, maybe if those that are interested in looking at the studies, uh, we can go into statistics. As you know, I love statistics. Companies have their part to play. Governments have their part to play. Economic instability that comes from war and all those things. No wonder the millennials are pissed off, really upset about the, the way that the olders have manage things or mismanage things but again you're not off the hook if you're around today we've got to talk about that something that i always talk about in my meetings and that is jugard if you're from india and you know what jugard means it means that you make do with what you have the analogy i always give is the age-old ad of uh, the hsbc company they use this advert a guy on the street in delhi or somewhere like that has a washing machine off-season, when he's not doing the clothes, he flips the washing machine on his side, he uses the drum for the washing machine to make candy floss. He doubles up, he uses his brain, he innovates, something that Gary Vee would love. But this shit Indians have been doing for years, <laughs> this Jugar. Okay, so I always talk about Jugar, and that's what Terry Mardi Group and Asian Music Digital we are about. This podcast is Jugar. Let me read you something. Becoming poor is not an event, it's a process. Just think about that. There's no one thing that happens that makes you poor. It's a process. And the process starts with a mindset. And I want to get your mindset into a mindset that can predict what's going to happen to the future. More of a strategist brain rather than a reactive brain to what's happening. Less tunnel vision and more bird's eye view. Right? Let me read something else to you. Like a plane crash, poverty is rarely caused by one thing going wrong. Usually, it's a series of misfortunes, a job loss, then a car accident, 
and then an eviction that interact and then compound. And it's this interaction and compounding that we can see all the clues and then do something about it. We can interject or disrupt that process. And the music industry is going through that right now. I look at the music industry as a, as a series of failings that are now compounding. But if we step in now, we can change things. And that's what I'm going to encourage everybody who listens to Asian Music Digital to do. So there is, of course, a direct relationship between millennial behavior and the future of the music industry, which is why I'm talking about it. If you haven't drawn that link already, then I don't know what, who you think I am, but that's what I do. I look at real world and I look at industry and I see the parallels. Okay. So there's a bunch of stuff happening in the education system, as we know, that's not working, that's not working for us. Right. Let's look at the stock market if, for those that are interested. Okay. So the average stock market returns uh, on the 401k plans. Okay. Baby boomers, 6.3% and millennials only 2.9%. Those of you that understand stock, you know exactly what well, that information came from BlackRock, not me. Yeah. BlackRock last year released that, that data, the average annual stock market returns. So, you know, there is stuff happening on all levels. It's not just people on streets that are being affected, people in the stock market are being affected. This isn't a class only issue. You know, the best people that are going to really rise up from this, the people that have fuck all today, no infrastructure, Com countries like Venezuela, countries in Africa, for example, I've got friends over in Morocco that are having huge problems, huge problems. Egypt went through an incredible existential change. You know, we all heard about the Twitter revolution. What's next? What's happening right now? What's bubbling under the surface? We can jump on planes and move there, by the way, guys. Anyway, next episode, I'm going to play another track. We're going to come back. Hopefully, this is offering you some insight as to how the future will pan out for us. Please. Let's talk about ancestral or accumulated wealth. There's a study. From 2007 to 2010, black families' retirement accounts shrank by 35%. Whereas white families who are more likely to have other sources of money saw their accounts grow by 9%. Hey, how can black families in the same time period of three years, 2007-2010, shrink their accounts of retirement funds when 9% increase in the white counterpart is happening at the same time? What's going on there? What is going on there? Well... The result is that millennials of color are more exposed to disaster than their peers. Many white millennials have an iceberg of accumulated wealth from their parents and grandparents that they can draw on to help with tuition, uh, rent, or place to stay during an unpaid internship. According to the Institute of Assets and Social Policy, this is in America, white Americans are five times more likely to receive an inheritance than black Americans. Five times more! which can be enough to make a down payment on a house or pay off student loans. By contrast, 67% of black families and 71% of Latino families don't have enough money saved to cover the next three months of living expenses. It's what I would call that to be hand-to-mouth living. Three-month ro uh, roadmap. That's what they've got. So what, where is this accumulated wealth within the black and Asian and Latino communities? Where is it in uh, our communities? Where where are we stashing our money? There was a few years ago, I think Chris Rock was doing a comedy sketch and he was just saying, 
the black people that he knew were just buying rims with their wealth, buying gold chains with their wealth. And I look at the music industry now and I see that that personified in a sort of a fashion statement, as it were. Anyway, just a bit of observation, a bit of side uh, critique there from um, a comedian. They often reveal the best truths. And so instead of receiving help from their families, millennials of color are more likely to be uh, called on to provide it. Right? Any extra income from a new job or a raise tends to get swallowed by bills or debts. And uh, many white millennials, they had help with that. For years after graduation, black college graduates have on average nearly twice as much student debt as their white counterparts and are three times more likely to be behind on payments. This is statistically proven. This financial undertow is cap captured in one staggering statistic. Check this out. Every extra dollar of income earned by a middle-class white family generates $5.19 in wealth. $5.19 of extra, every extra dollar that white families earn in middle-class America, right? That's what they earn from every dollar. For black families, guess what it is? 69 cents. What the fuck? <laughs> okay? What are we going to do to change that? That's a scary statistic. Scary statistic. And it's so disproportional. There's a graph that I looked at called the arc of injustice. It looks at the racial wealth gap. And looking at the, the, the gap between the white wealth and the black wealth is actually growing. Right? It's actually growing over time. It peaked at around 2005-7, right, where white wealth really spearheaded. It dropped down, it reduced slightly around 2009, but it's actually growing again. Since 2009, it's growing again. It's probably going to go back up to where it was in 2005. Seriously scary. The median white hold household, median white household, will have 86 times more wealth than the median black household by 2020. I don't know what you guys are thinking, but here on Asian Music Digital, I'm here to address that, particularly in the music business and looking at disruptive technologies. That's why over the next coming weeks, we will be talking about blockchain. We will be talking about disruptive technology that's going to change that gap. I have nothing against white people. Most of my family are of different origins. Okay, so my brothers and sisters are black, white, Asian. If you've met, you know, some of my brothers and sisters, you know, Irish, Welsh, French. This is not a race thing. This is definitely an infrastructural thing. And I'm wondering why the publishing business in, in South Asia is so far behind. And I'm seeing that there are massive economic downturns that are affecting us from all over the world. So if the American Desis and the British Asians want to catch up, we've got to address this stuff at an economic level. All right, more to come up. Let's play a track now that might be a little bit different. Keep your calls coming in and kick that star. Cheers. This is Terry Mardi, Asian Music Digital. Welcome back. Now, what parallels can we draw between the property business, the real estate business, and the music industry? No, really. Think about it. The way that we live, the perception of a value of a home is changing every day. There used to be a time, not long ago, that perhaps your parents' generation were looking at properties as an investment, a family home that they would buy for the long term, at a time where job security existed, right? Your dad or your mum or someone in your family senior would think about a home close to where they worked and they would make a massive commute. Let me give an example of an uncle and aunt of mine. 
They lived in London, they worked in London, their commute was about 45 minutes and they would live near their families. They were happy. They raised their family in schools nearby. They could visualize themselves living like that. The company that they worked for then moved head office and they moved almost five, six hundred miles away into Wales. Right, so now they had to leave their family. I know there were a lot of tears. I remember seeing my aunt crying. I remember them always for years and years always say, we wish we never moved, but our company moved. The value of London changed. It wasn't valuable for them because they couldn't afford to stay there anymore. Because jobs were for life back then. There was no real idea of just changing jobs. They could have just at that point said, let's just change jobs. It wasn't a done thing. The idea was to stay in a stable place. That's their mindset. Perhaps if they were more entrepreneurial, they could have quit their jobs and stayed, right? Found another job. But that wasn't what they did. Instead, they went to where the money is. Sounds familiar, right? In the music industry, a lot of people make songs that might get them to their destination. They go where the money is. Hey, if I do this as a track, maybe that will get me to where I want to go. But let me remind you, my aunt would cry week in, week out, saying how she misses London. Does that sound like something that artists face? Maybe they are missing what they really want to sing about, but instead they're forced to do music that pays the bills or gets them to on a playlist or gets them to where they want to go, gets them that gig at a wedding, gets them that, you know, that tour that they want. Something to think about. The other thing to think about is how freeways or motorways or things like that change the way cities operate. You didn't need to, li live to, need to live in the cities in order to work in the cities. Because of transport, you could now live outside the city and get to where you need to be. Then we moved into a place where you could work from home. Internet con connectivity changed that. So where are we going next? People are now working from home all the time. They're working remotely. Me, for example, I work all over the world from a laptop and a mobile phone. The most valuable commodity at, at this point in my life is data. The satellites and the data plans and the Wi-Fi signals. That's the new railroad. And how is that affecting the music business? Years ago, we used to buy music. Then we started, you know, physical copies of music. Then we started to download them, but not in masses numbers. You know, we, and we weren't accepting of the intangible formats. We wanted to feel something in our hands. In fact, we'd pay $15 or £15 for a CD, but wouldn't even think about spending £7 on a piece of data that arrives on your phone. Then to stream it for seven bucks a month and watch Netflix for seven, eight, whatever you pay for every month on Amazon became the norm. Now the commodity is not the tangibility. We're at a place where the commodity is the convenience. We know that we are time poor and we want things instantly. That's what the millennials say all the time. And it's not just the millennials, everybody. I hear older people complaining about the NHS, waiting for a bus for longer than five minutes. They'll grumble, even though British people are the world's best cures. They love queuing. So what's going to happen next? What is the valuable commodity in the music business that people are going to want to put value on? I'd love to hear your opinions. I have mine. So this is Asian Music Digital. We know that the world is becoming more data-driven. Analysis is one thing that we'll be talking about. And I'll be giving you statistics, just like I have done. You can read and listen to my other uh, episodes. In the new year, I'll even be writing more blog posts. You can check me out and TMP Records on the go right here on the Anchor FM app. 
Be sure to give me some applause, I do like the encouragement, and also make me a favourite so you can hear my voice every single day. Download the Anchor app and get it for free on the App Store. More to come, let's play a track now, yeah? Okay, okay. Good day, this is Terry Mardi. Welcome back to Asian Music Digital. It's the day before New Year's Eve, and we are talking about millennials and the bright or not so bright future in the Asian music industry running parallels from other life experiences. We just looked at the property business and what we could perhaps learn from the way that boomed and fell and kept booming again, and how things in the real world can actually give us indicators to where the new music business will go. The economic downturn after the 2007-8 recession has given new life to entrepreneurialism. The number of Kickstarter campaigns and new business startups has increased dramatically. A few years ago, I was involved with a UK government-based initiative called New Deal of the Mind, which encouraged all sorts of people to be mentored by people like myself on starting new businesses. It was around 2010, and we were talking to young people about what their aspirations were. I remember talking to so many people, hundreds of young people, who had dreams of becoming the next Steve Jobs or the new Mark Zuckerberg. It wasn't just in tech. There were florists that thought they could take on heavy hitters like Interflora. There were property tycoons that were really attracting the eye of young people who wanted to start with one bedsit in Lewisham. The number of people that have started businesses since then has increased and government has made it much easier in the UK and in other countries around the world to do that. But 40% of businesses that failed, failed because they were statistic. They, they failed because they were supposed to fail. And there are so many other statistics about the number of startups that fail. And they're much higher. They're in the 90s or the 80s percent. The majority of people uh, who start businesses don't sustain after three years. IPOs, or what we're now calling ICOs in the digital space, are coming, but they might not stick around. And we tend to call them a bubble. But how can we predict what the next big thing's going to be? We've got to look at the traditional ways of doing things as a more sustainable way to build a new business idea. I mentioned cryptocurrencies to a handful of my very wealthy friends, people with high net worth of at least 10 million pounds plus. And five out of 10 of them told me to stay away from it. And I looked at their business models, I was thinking, you're an incredibly clever person. Why would you tell me to stay away from what I believe to be the new big thing? And this was about a year ago. The same people, and I haven't got the exact stats, but at least half of those people that said stay away are now dabbling in it. Maybe it's fear of missing out. I don't know. But there's one thing that I've learned in life in business is that when you're convicted about an idea, when you believe in something, it's almost like a parasite that lives within us. It takes over and it starts to lead us down a path. Now, all I have to do is check in and make sure that the parasite is not taking me down the wrong path. And perhaps parasite's not the right way to talk about it. Maybe we can call it inspiration. (laughs) Sounds a lot better than parasite. But it does wriggle inside me like a little bug. Entrepreneurs out there will know what I'm talking about. If you're not doing what you believe in, you feel like you're wasting your time. You may as well be dead. So I'm thinking, 
Maybe the millennials out there that want to start businesses just don't know how to do it with longevity in sight. And those that are doing it, what can we learn from them? There is a spontaneity to starting new businesses. I'm in my double digits in the number of businesses that we've started, and we're going to head up to triple digits over the next two, three years. In fact, by 2020, I've got a challenge, personal challenge, to start or be involved with 100 businesses. All I'm trying to do is learn. All I'm trying to do is help people live their dreams. Why is that such a bad idea? My friend who told me to stay away from it is now involved in it. So I'm convinced that maybe it's not such a bad idea. And maybe you don't think it's a bad idea either. It doesn't mean that everybody's fit to run their own business. Not everybody is a starter. We all play different roles. And there are spiritual tools and measures that we could use to find out where we fit. I know a friend who is an entrepreneur who uses your star sign, your zodiac sign, to determine what it is that uh, you can contribute to a business. And often he will only interview people of a particular uh, star sign because he knows that those traits are working for him. It's a very interesting concept. Anyway, if you've got a concept that you'd like to bring forward, get in touch, Asian Mutual Digital. I'm Terry Mardi. Hope you're well, bro. Manny here from TMP on the call. I just heard this uh, last segment of your podcast. And I was thinking, if you're young and you're in your 20s, your 30s, I think you have to try different things. I think you have to try to expand and get as much experience as you can. And I think starting a business, and it can be a small business, it doesn't have to be anything extravagant, is such a good way to gain life experience and see. It kind of helps you discover who you are as a person. So I think it's something that everybody should try out, even if it's an eBay business or you know, um, landscaping or tech or music or anything business regard, like business related. I think it should be something that everybody tries out. And I can speak from my personal experience, starting a business. Anik Khan there from the USA called the knowing. All right. So we're going to talk about the knowing and I want to bring up a word millennials. Someone sent me an article, and thank you so much to the person who sent me this article. They clearly know me. They sent me an article, and I read it. That's what you do. And I found out a little bit about this whole thing on millennials through this article. Okay, I found out that I am one, almost. And basically, I found out that people that were born between 20... What am I talking about? 2004, all the way back to 1982. I think that's the case. So if you're born between 1982 and 2004, apparently, according to this study and this article, you are a millennial. Now, what the heck does that mean? All right. What does that mean? Well, it firstly means that you were born into uncertainty. A little bit like how I explained earlier with my life, you kind of just adapt. You grow up with through your own lens. You don't really, as a young person... Uh, put labels on things all you know is what you know your instinct tends to take control and you're out in the world looking for love from someone and you you assume that will come from one place and then the rug is snatched from underneath you let's say look at divorce rates in the west have been for about a decade now about 50 percent and rising now what happens when your dad leaves or your mum leaves 
What happens when the school is, that you go to is no longer the school you go to because you've moved so many times that you're from having to start from scratch every few years? What happens when your circle of friends abandon you and you've got to find new friends? What happens then later in life when you are faced with splitting from your school friends and going to university and finding a bunch of new friends there? What happens then when you realize that you then further compartmentalize and find new friends based on your tastes that have evolved over time? What happens then when you're told that you can follow a path of education which will lead you to a, a lifelong journey called a career? What happens then when that's not true and you lose your job because in 2007 there was an economy crash and the recession led us into a place where no one knows what's going to happen tomorrow? What happens then when your world leaders decide to push a big red button and you're constantly living on the edge? What happens then when you look on the news every single day or on your Facebook feed or your Instagram feed or your Twitter feed or any other feed when you see people snapchatting about war-torn crap going on in their country controlled by people that are anonymous, cloaked by ambiguity? What happens then when you are then told by the people that are supposed to be there to guide you and mentor you through the life that you are useless, that you are, in inverted commas, entitled? What happens then when you are then told by those same people that you don't know how to live because you've got it all easy? How are you going to feel? What happens then when this uncertainty sets in and becomes part of your being to the point where you don't care about a long-term goal? You care about now. You spend less time looking for gratification. You want it instantly. You want to like, yeah? You want to share. You want a three minute video to make you feel better. You know the number of motivational videos just keeps going up and up and up and up. Surely we just need one motivational video. And once you're motivated, you can stay motivated. Nope, not anymore. Fads have come a long way. Fads are starting to get shorter and shorter. There's something called fast fashion. You used to have a few seasons, a winter collection, and you'd have a spring-summer collection. So you have the autumn, winter, twice a year. There you go. New clothes in your stores. Go onto any high street or mall right now. There's a brand new range coming out every day. Everyone's having a sale all the time. But the thing is, biologically, your heart doesn't beat any faster. And if it does, it's unhealthy. It's not like everything's speeding up and so are we. We haven't magically gone much quicker. If you look at the 100 meter race statistics and since 1960 and now, there's about a second in it, maybe two. We haven't got that much faster. No one's running the 100 meters race and winning it in 4.2 seconds. Yeah, the Tesla car can take us to 0.2, but the human being driving it's still going to be thrown into the back of the seat. You might be able to create technology to go faster than us, but we are not technologically advanced. We are still fundamentally basic creatures. Our brain is moving faster than ever. But what are we doing to look after it? Anyway, let's move on. This is the pretext of the next section. We're going to get into millennials. Stay with me on this. I'm going to play a track now. Check it out. Let's talk about ancestral or accumulated wealth. There's a study from 2007 to 2010, black families' retirement accounts shrank by 35%, whereas white families who are more likely to have other sources of money saw their accounts grow by 9%. Hey, how can black families in the same time period of three years, 2007 to 2010, shrink 
their accounts of retirement funds when a 9% increase in the white counterpart is happening at the same time. What's going on there? What is going on there? Well, the result is that millennials of color are more exposed to disaster than their peers. Many white millennials have an iceberg of accumulated wealth from their parents and grandparents that they can draw on to help with tuition, uh, rent, or place to stay during an unpaid internship. According to the Institute of Assets and Social Policy, this is in America, white Americans are five times more likely to receive an inheritance than black Americans. Five times more! Which can be enough to make a down payment on a house or pay off student loans. By contrast, 67% of black families and 71% of Latino families don't have enough money saved to cover the next three months of living expenses. It's what I would call that to be hand-to-mouth living. Three-month ro uh, roadmap. That's what they've got. So what, where is this accumulated wealth within the black and Asian and Latino communities? Where is it in uh, our communities? Where, where are we stashing our money? There was a few years ago, I think Chris Rock was doing a comedy sketch and he was just saying the black people that he knew were just buying rims with their wealth, buying gold chains with their wealth. And I look at the music industry now and I see that that personified in a sort of a fashion statement as it were. Anyway, just a bit of observation, a bit of side uh, critique there from um, a comedian. They often reveal the best truths. And so, instead of receiving help from their families, millennials of color are more likely to be uh, called on to provide it. Right? Any extra income from a new job or a raise tends to get swallowed by bills or debts. And uh, many white millennials, they had help with that. For years after graduation, black college graduates have on average nearly twice as much student debt as their white counterparts. And are three times more likely to be behind on payments. This is statistically proven. This financial undertow is cap captured in one staggering statistic. Check this out. Every extra dollar of income earned by a middle-class white family generates $5.19 in wealth. $5.19 of extra, every extra dollar that white families earn in middle-class America, right? That's what they earn from every dollar. For black families, guess what it is? 69 cents what the fuck <laughs> okay what are we going to do to change that that's a scary statistic a scary statistic and it's so disproportional there's a graph that i looked at called the arc of injustice it looks at the racial wealth gap and looking at the the, the gap between the white wealth and the black wealth is actually growing right it's actually growing over time it peaked at around 2005-7, right, where white wealth really spearheaded. It dropped down, it reduced slightly around 2009, but it's actually growing again. Since 2009, it's growing again. It's probably going to go back up to where it was in 2005. Seriously scary. The median white hold household, median white household, will have 86 times more wealth than the median black household by 2020. I don't know what you guys are thinking, but here on Asian Music Digital, I'm here to address that, particularly in the music business and looking at disruptive technologies. That's why over the next coming weeks, we will be talking about blockchain. We will be talking about disruptive technology that's going to change that gap. I have nothing against white people. Most of my family are of different origins. Okay, so my brothers and sisters are black. 
white, Asian. If you've met, you know, some of my brothers and sisters, you know. Irish, Welsh, French. This is not a race thing. This is definitely an infrastructural thing. And I'm wondering why the publishing business in, in South Asia is so far behind. And I'm seeing that there are massive economic downturns that are affecting us from all over the world. So if the American Desis and the British Asians want to catch up, we've got to address this stuff at an economic level. All right, more to come up. Let's play a track now that might be a little bit different. Keep your calls coming in and kick that star. Cheers. Good day, this is Terry Mardi, And this is the second part of today's 30th of December podcast here at Asian Music Digital. In the first part, you may have heard me talk about a uh, retraction, um, essentially fact-finding and how important it is to be clear and concise if you're in the media's voice or eye. Little um, errors in fact-checking could lead to grand butterfly effects across the world that could impact people in an emotional, negative way. So we've talked about that. And it brought me on to the topic of education. The fact that I uh, share this podcast with all of you for free um, in the previous podcast, I talked about that because I believe education should be free and it comes at a premium. But I would think I was talking about that from a much more privileged perspective. But I took it back immediately after pressing end on the recording. It took me right back to the time where I was institutionalized myself. I came from a system. I came from a system where my original birth parents one day weren't there anymore. And as a young child, I didn't understand who was going to take care of me. All I knew is I needed my mummy and my daddy. They weren't there anymore. And these strangers, over time, procured a method of institutionalized love. And I, like all human beings, was able to adapt and find comfort in the coldest of areas. It's something that we're brilliant at. Because I got educated over time, my knowledge base expanded and I suddenly realized what had actually happened. I knew that I was an institution and I suddenly realized that I was an adopted child. I didn't know that at the time. At the time, I was just looking for love wherever I could find it, whether it be in the comfort of a blanket or a teddy bear or a toy or perhaps a tape recorder. It doesn't really matter. There was always a surrogate for what I really needed. But looking back with education, what it can offer somebody like me or any other being for that matter is reflection. And retrospect already has that benefit. So with retrospect, what are we going to say about education being free? At what point do we teach people the very basics? What comes to mind is the relationship, if you've seen the movie Karate Kid, if you've seen the movie, you see that Mr. Miyagi, the sensei, has a very unique relationship with Danielson. It's a relationship that isn't always easy. If you remember the scene with Wax on Wax Off, Daniel takes a beating many a time. He physically is challenged, mentally is challenged, emotionally. Many times he breaks down in that movie. It's probably why so many girls fell in love with the actor at the time. He's vulnerable. In the education system that Mr. Miyagi was providing to Daniel's son, there was no question of the intention being honest. We all knew that it was for his best. There may be moments where we were questioning whether it was 
for Daniel's best. We might, you know, could we see Mr. Miyagi as the bad guy at any point in the movie? And there are various people who thought he was a bad guy or uncalled for. But overall, the vast majority of people believe that Mr. Miyagi was a good teacher. Can we say the same thing about our education platforms and systems? Look, Asian Music Digital is just trying to contribute to awareness of education being around the world. We're trying to basically, in the same way that Khan Academy is doing it for academics, we're trying to do it for the music business information. There's a new music business coming, we know about it, we want to tell the world about it. It's very simple, but there is a cost to that. It might be free for you to download the app, but the cost of data is already limiting who can listen to it. The fact that you need a smartphone or some kind of electrical device and electricity, mind you, means that almost definitely a third of the world can't have access to this inf information. But that doesn't mean that we stop doing what we're doing, we try and resolve it bottom up. Maybe we would continue to resolve it top down, or from sideways, with different angles. What I'm saying is, education should be free sounds great for a middle class political campaign. But there's always a cost. And I just want to raise the question, what is the cost of free? The UK's education system and healthcare has financially always been free to the consumer, but really it's coming from taxpayers' money. So it's a redistribution of wealth. So what can we learn about that in the music business? How can we redistribute wealth correctly to make it a more favourable and balanced industry? Just a thought.